Yeah, yeah, hello there. Uh, just uh, my name is David. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, name is David. I'm filling in for Troy here. Uh, he's uh, been so kind to let me jump on here and do the little intro for you. Your, your guitar wankers, you call them. Uh, but uh, I just like to say I'm a fan of the show. Thank you, thank you, Troy, for jump. Let me jump in here. Um, uh, but um, oh, oh, you want me to read that? Okay. Uh, oh, so uh, I believe this episode two twenty three. Oh, you guys have done a lot of them. Great, great work there. Uh, two twenty three. And uh, who you've got on today, Troy? We got oh Henry Kaiser. I've heard of this fella. He's a he's an interesting cat, and uh, I I listened to the episode with Troy just before and uh, Diver, I believe Diver, a scuba diver. I never knew that about this man, but uh, uh, Bruce does a great job at uh, talking with him, and uh, yeah, so sit back and relax. Oh, okay. Uh, or you better go to uh, guitarwank.com. And uh, check it all out there. You can catch up on all the episodes, Troy's telling me. And uh, also, you can get m- new mugs. Oh, look at you. New mugs, mate. Uh, that's great. We're going to get some new mugs. If you haven't got a Guitar Wank mug, you can go there. And you've got a, you've got a few to choose from, it looks like. That's, that's great. Uh, so go there. You can get your mugs, your hats, T-shirts. And all that kind of stuff. And I'll be wearing them, and, and it gets a little chilly on the willy. So we'll do that. Um, yes, yes. What else we got? Oh, if you can also, Bruce has got his Grumps TV. It's a fantastic show. If you don't know it, go there, check it out. It's a good one. Um, uh, Bruce does a great job. But Grumps TV. Uh, I, I think he's well. He's finished. Oh, oh. But you got like fifty. 50 episodes to get involved with that so there you go anyway uh i'd just like to thank the fellas for all that they do uh they do they do a lot here and everything's uh just charity work for them yes (laughs) i believe it's charity work so if you can go to their patreon page and support the fellas that'd be great uh to give them a bit of a boost to keep them off the streets you don't want scott on the streets or bruce or even Troy for that matter you don't want any of them on the streets you want to keep them off the streets so go to Patreon Guitar Wank Patreon slash guitarwank.com and you can go there you can go to the website and do that too and you can send these these bastards messages on uh, guitarwank at gmail.com so uh, sit back enjoy the show and uh, if you want to advertise on this show you uh, reach out to the fellas and they'll make that happen. You can advertise your music or your product or anything else you'd like to promote. It's great. So, uh, yeah, I hope you're all safe out there in these crazy times. I'm going to shut up now. Troy's looking at me funny. And uh, we'll get on with it. So uh, sit back and enjoy Guitar Wank episode 223 with Henry Kaiser. And... Uh, Yes, and check out his Dumble video that uh, we've, I've seen on the internet. So, yeah, well, good stuff. Good stuff, ladies. Whoa. Mm-hmm. 
Well, wankers, I am so excited here. This is, first of all, the first remote podcast from my man cave, my little hole in the country that I visit when my wife lets me. Also, I happen to be sitting here with a, a hero and an amazing person that I'm going to be really happy to introduce you to, Mr. Henry Kaiser. Hey. Welcome, Henry, to Guitar Wank. Hey, Bruce, thank you, and thanks, everybody, for listening. And, you know... Uh, you know, like I, all I can say is I know, you know, you consented to doing this without hearing any of the other episodes, and I think that's probably the only reason you consented <laughs> to doing it. <laughs> but anyways, so for, for the few people that don't know you or only know you from that iconic and famous YouTube video of you and Dumble playing together, tell us about yourself. Well, so I'm a guitarist who started playing in 1972 when I was 20 years old, and I started to make records around 1977, and I'm on about 350 albums now, if I count them. So wow. that's a crazy number, and I play a lot of concerts all over the world, and I play many different kinds of music. I play kind of experimental free improvisation, and I play contemporary composed experimental stuff, I play rock stuff, and I play blues stuff, and I've made quite a few fusion records. I looked the other day, and I was like, I've made that many fusion records? Really? Because I always listen to fusion music, but I didn't know I'd made so many records in that sort of genre. Wow. Um, and I've done a lot of world music collaborations, particularly with people from... Um, particularly with people from Madagascar and Korea and uh, North India, uh, South India too. Um, so I've done a lot of weird things. And then my, meanwhile, all of this, my day job is I am a scientific diver and a scientific diving instructor. Whoa. I've been a scientific diving instructor since 1980, so for a long time. And I've been a diver in the United States Antarctic program since 2001 with 13 deployments in Antarctica. And so I can, wait a minute, you dive in that cold water? Under the ice, yeah, that's my job. And I have, Dude. I've spent <laughs> two and a half years of my life sleeping in a tent outside on the sea ice in Antarctica and working every day under that ice. And I don't think there's any other guitar player that can say that. And then oddly enough, um, I've made a lot of CDs of music about Antarctica. And I well, yeah, I mean, I, I just listened to uh, today. I listened to again the um, into the, the deep, deep unreal, the, the deep, deep unreal, unreal right? Yeah. And um, I also have a third job, which is I'm a filmmaker, and I've made four films with Werner Herzog, the German director, and one of those we got an Academy Award nomination for, Encounters at the End of the World. David Lindley and I did the soundtrack for that, and um, so that's some of the stuff I do. But one of the Great delights for me as a guitar player is I have got to play with so many and record with so many of my heroes, um, both guitarists and people who played other instruments. And that's always gone on since the very beginning, the, the playing with heroes thing. And that's been a very satisfying thing for me that they, they, they let me into their worlds and uh. I let them into my world. And So that's, that's the background. That's what I, that's what I do. Wow. Wow, that's a hell of a day job. I've never really heard of that. I mean, never met anybody who slept on sea ice and, and actually, you. so you, 
we'll get to the guitar. But, I have, I have, but I, you I, go I, under I, under the ice and you dive like do work. Right. So like sometimes the ice is very twenty thick. feet th- twenty feet thick. Yeah, that's and about some, the average we, thickness. Sometimes we use dynamite to make holes in the ice. Sometimes we use hole melters. Sometimes we use drills. Sometimes we use chainsaws. But I'm I'm a you know, and I, and then you dive free. I mean, like with just tanks. On tanks, no tether. Right, there's no tether. We're the only people who dive off tether under ice. The U.S. Antarctic Program and McMurdo Station. Everybody else is on tether, under ice everywhere in the world. And so I have about, I don't know. Like not no. I mean, so basically, you're on your own. We remember where we are. It's like I can always find my car in the parking lot. Oh, it's God never, bet. it's never a problem. Um, but so I, I got about. I don't know, 440 dives under ice in Antarctica. I've got about 4,000 dives total in my life as a research diver. I'm not a recreational diver. I'm uh-huh. a scientific working diver. I taught underwater research for many years at UC Berkeley. Uh-huh. So that's the gig. That's the gig. Wow. And then I'll take a guitar down there and I'll record stuff. And I've made a lot of, I think, like six or seven albums. The Penguins ever complain? You know, penguins are boring and irritating. I just stay away from the penguins. Oh, I, okay. I like seals. I like okay. Waddell seals. So I hang with the Waddell seals, and they never complain. <laughs> <laughs> penguins are too stupid to complain. They, they, yeah. They're sort of like the head waiters of Antarctica. Oh, no, right? they're, 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 they're dumber. They're, <laughs> Major D kind they're, of guys. They're not yeah. even, they're really, they're the worst. <laughs> so that's all, that's all the stuff I do. And as you mentioned, there was a, an ancient video of, Dumble playing with me on yeah, an instructional video right. of mine. And Dumble I was friends with for years, and I grew up playing his amps since they were. Right, you were. From, are you from? Well, you didn't you live near him? I mean, he, I, he no, was, I lived in Oakland. I met him when he. So okay, here's the story. Yeah. So I was playing in a friend's garage near in Santa Cruz, uh-huh. and we come out of the garage, and a guy pulls up on a motorcycle and says, "Hey, you know, my name's Howard. I make I make amplifiers. You want to try one? I'll go get one." And he drove off on his motorcycle and came back. At that time. Probably the most famous user would would be Lindley uh-huh. and Lil George, and um, this is before Robin Ford or anything. Uh-huh. And he came in, played the amp with us, and he's a great guitar player, Dumble. Mm-hmm. And I, a few years later, I got one, and uh, then I would pick up used ones and other ones over the years. Mm-hmm. And so I have a long history with those kind of amps. And since 1980 or so, those kind of amps taught me how to play with an amp. So I'm kind of spoiled. So uh-huh. I kind of need one of those or one of their descendants. Uh-huh. Um, other people have made amps that descend from those. And so that's something I have a lot of experience with. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then through him, I met David Lindley and have done quite a few records with Lindley. Um, and um, back around the same time, I met Richard Thompson great guitarist, English guy, folk rock guy, rock guy, and I've made a lot of records with him, and uh, that's the early Santa Cruz So do you have your own record company now, or do you... You know, I do stuff for different record companies, and then I'll put some things out myself, particularly Uh if I want something to come out right away, you know, in this world where record companies don't do the promotion and stuff like they used to. Um, it's like it's quick to put something out, to have it online for download too. But I like physical product. It's easy to sell physical product on Amazon. So it's easy to do, you know, a small level release yourself and sell, you know, fifteen hundred physical product copies and, uh-huh. and break break even for what you cost to do it. And right. there's an audience still there for that of people getting older and older, mm-hmm. shrinking audience. Yeah, yeah. 
So you say you've been traveling quite a bit playing. Where where have you played lately? <sighs> I don't even think about it. Where do I play late? Where have I played lately? Have I been anywhere foreign lately? I probably have. I play in Norway. Mm-hmm. I play in Japan. Um, I don't play a lot of other places in Europe or the UK. I used to play those those places. I played in uh, um, in the Emirates. <laughs> Wow, really? Lots of crazy places, yeah. 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 Playing Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Play, play less on the East Coast. It's just getting less satisfying to play, make money on the East Coast. It's gotten too expensive. And think, you know, pay has gone down, goes down and down and down for, for gigs, for guitarists, wherever yeah. they may be. So I don't, don't get to those places very much anymore. Hmm. So um, you gave me a bunch of projects. I know the the Love Supreme seemed like it was recent. Is that a well? So I have this band with a drummer, John Hanrahan. It's technically his band called a Love Supreme Electric, Uh and we'll play a Love Supreme and other repertoire. We played Coltrane's Meditations. Uh We we have an album of that coming out soon. What you have is a promo album of just a local local gig, but we have a nice album with Vinnie Golia on saxophone, Mike Watt. From the Minutemen and so forth on bass. I think that's what I've got. I've got the oh, yeah. mix of that. Yeah, and yeah. and Wayne Pete on organ. Yeah. So that that's a, that's a, that's just a, f- a fun project of yeah. John's. It's uh-huh. it's interesting to play that music. Um, it's really open music, and it comes out different every time. And I don't think a lot of other people who've recorded a Love Supreme they've done more reverential. Let's try to do it like the record. Right. But it doesn't seem to be a lot of point in doing that because it never has the the spirit or the mojo of the yeah. Coltrane original. And I find that, you know, a lot of the time lightning strikes us when we play a Love Supreme or Meditations. Uh, I have a long history of playing mid-70s, specifically 73 to 75, Miles Davis music. I've made about seven or eight discs with Wadada Leo Smith where we play that material and then new stuff that's in that spirit. Uh-huh. Uh, and Miles Davis in that period had a unique approach to music that was very expressionistic. And it would be the, the quote, tunes, unquote, were like formulas um, that would produce different results every time. They weren't tunes like um, Seven Steps to Heaven or, right. or All Blues. And those even did produce different results. Yes, they did. Too, that's, you know, that's what Miles was always interested in. Yeah. So, Kind of that is I've applied that aesthetic in my mind, and Michael Manring, who pl- I play plays bass with me a lot, right. we pl- apply that aesthetic to the cold tr- train material, right? Um, and uh, the miles, how you you know, that's a formula, and then different things happen, musical formula or a spiritual formula. I think there's a spiritual formula with the Love Supreme. Very much. You know, I, I, a friend of mine who's a great Korean musician, she listened to a Love Supreme. The Coltrane didn't even really know that I did this stuff. And she said, Henry, I have a question. Why John Coltrane phrasing like Gugak, like Korean music on Love Supreme? And I thought about it. I said, well, let's see what year that was, what he could have listened to. Then I looked at when the releases, uh, he couldn't have heard the Korean music. And I said, well, maybe he was trying to invoke the spirits with a Love Supreme and he thought he was getting Christian Baptist spirits. But maybe he got the Korean spirits instead. <laughs> you know, maybe they're all the same. Maybe they're all the same. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. You've always had a, you know, obviously a different aesthetic 
and a different approach to what you like to do. And uh, wh where would you say that came from? Oh, that's the problem because it's such a long list. So well, what I come from is I come from particular blues guitarist in the African-American tradition. When I would say that's Hubert Sumlin, who played with Helen Wolfe and Albert Collins. And I would say of acoustic stuff, it's um, Robert Pete Williams and Skip James. Okay, so that, that's the blues, the main blues stuff for me. And, you know, everybody listened to B.B. King and Albert and Freddie right. King and all that. And I listened to all of that and, you know, a thousand other blues guitar, hundred right. blues guitarists. But the, but the ones I mentioned are the favorites. Uh, of the experimental guitarists, for me, it's Sonny Chirac, who's like the first steps on the moon, the first person to take the guitar where free jazz was going. And my big guru and friend was Derek Bailey, a British guitarist who really expanded guitarist language, Keith Rowe, uh, Masayuki Takayanagi in Japan, uh, a little bit Fred Frith, but he was more a friend of mine who's kind of a contemporary. Um, so those people are really important to me. And fusion guitarists, it's McLaughlin, Terry Ripdahl, to C.G. Munoz, Larry Coryell, um, those guys were important to me. Um, jazz guitarist, it's George Van Epps and Jim Hall uh, for their, you know, trying new things. They were experimenting when they were playing. The jazz guitarists who did that always impressed me mm -hmm. a lot. Ray Russell, another guy who played both fusion and experimental stuff, was really important to me. Um, American Free Jazz, Art Ensemble of Chicago, AACM. Um, Pete Cozy, another guy, a, a straddling between being experimental and free jazz and blues and rock. He was a, played with Miles and was a chess studio player. He was a friend of mine, somebody I can channel. There's a few guitarists I can channel. He's somebody I can, I can, you know, he's dead. I can mm -hmm. channel him still. Mm -hmm. um, he, I subbed for him in Bob Belden's Miles for India project when he was in the hospital. And then he came back later in the year and was playing SF Jazz. And he said, Henry, I want you to come down to the to our rehearsal, and I want you to sit next to me when we rehearse so I can talk to you while we, we rehearse. And so I went there, and I sat next to him, and he told me all the time he was playing what he was thinking. Now I'm using Indian music system. Now I'm putting 12-tone against it. Now I'm doing yeah. this. And he told me everything. And then I said, you know, Pete, you may not remember, but 1973, I went to see you with Miles at... Um, Paul's Mall in Boston, where I was in college, and I went up and talked to you at the break, and you were really nice, and you told me all kinds of stuff. He said, I did? I said, yeah. He said, you told me how you used the boss tone fuzz, and you plugged the chord halfway into it, and you could do things with your volume knob there, I think later what people did with a Fuzz Factory from Zvex. He said, mm -hmm. I told you that? I said, yeah. He says, you know, I really wish I hadn't gotten rid of that boss tone, because I like doing that. This in the contemporary world, he said mm -hmm. that. I said, well, Pete, the next day I went to Wurlitzer Music in Boston, I bought a boss tone, and I'll bring it to you the gig tomorrow, and it's yours. And he said, oh, I'm so happy. And I bought it the next day because of him, and then I was yeah. able to give it back to him. Yeah. You know. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, all that stuff I grew up with. Recently made a record, um, group called Five Times Surprise, Jeff Sipe on drums, uh, Tracy Silverman on violin, Anthony Pirogue on the other guitar, Andy West on bass, and uh, we did a cover of a Mahavishnu tune of You Know You Know, which is mm -hmm. kind of like a most common yeah. Mahavishnu tune to cover. And 
we were all really nervous because Sipe played a lot with John and Andy Dixie Dregs was originally a Mahavishnu cover band, so we we tried to do a good job with it. So here it is, kind of a fantastic fiddle solo from from Tracy in it. Wow, that's cool, man! And yeah, yeah, so we can play that there. Yeah, so that's great. And and what's kind of on the agenda now? What's your big plans? Are you got any dives under the Antarctic? Are you going to take the guitar and record it under there? I got a new puppy, and oh. I, I've done we've done all that stuff recording in Antarctica. Uh, but but yes, I will I will get to that. But um, this year, taking a year off from going to Antarctica, which is unusual for me because I'm you know I'm getting old. I'm sixty seven, and how many more years can I keep going down there and work do the incredibly back breaking physical work? We work twenty twenty hour days, really seven days a week. No break for a couple of months without a break because there's no money for science. So, yeah. you know, we're on government grants, so we just have to work all the time. So I'm taking this year off, but I'll be back next year either with my new current project I work for, which is um, the McMurdo Oceanographic Observatory. And if you search for Moo, like the sound a cow makes, uh. in Antarctica, Moo in Antarctica, it'll take you to moo-antarctica.net. You can see a lot of videos. I've shot under the ice wow. there. And one thing that's come out of all this and all these, and also being a diver my whole life since I was 11, longer than I played guitar, is I've always <laughs> done music about place, music about experience, so music about underwater in Antarctica. And maybe we can throw some on the background here and talk about it, which this is a track from a new record of mine. It's a record called More, Re More Requia. More Requiem, Troy. If you can, uh, yeah. If you yeah. if you can get this, please do it. Stick it under us. Yeah. Because um, it'll work as a background. More, uh, is it on, is it on? Uh, Hasn't it's coming on? Product is on its way. From is, the, is it on the? It's the first thing. Okay. Cool. Yeah. More. So we're gonna play. Just don't play this part. Don't okay. include this. But we'll play the tr first track on the. Well, we play everything. Yeah. So so, okay. so yeah, the first track, which is called that, that time. time in the cauldron at Point Lobos, which is a memory of an old dive that I did with my dive guru, the diving safety officer at UC Berkeley, who I worked for 17 years, Lloyd Austin, who died earlier this year. And it's a memory of a dive, dive that we did together 30 years ago uh, in a place where divers are not usually allowed in Point Lobos. And we were out in the front of Point Lobos where those rocks with all the oh, seals wow, were. Oh, wow, really? And there's a dive site there he called the cauldron, which almost no Nobody has ever dived, and we were there, and there's five, five ocean currents meet at once. And there were these crazy giant schools of fish, and there's the feeling of the diving and all that, and that's in the music for this. It's my requiem for him of remembering my... Do you want to pause that while we take Yeah, I'm going to get these dogs under control here. Hold on, folks.
So we were in the cauldron. We're in the cauldron, this dive site at Point Lobos, which is, what, about 12, 12 miles from us as the crow flies right, right now. Right. And it was one of the greatest dives of my life. And when Lloyd died, I just grabbed the guitar and said, and remembered that dive together and tried to put it into notes. So what I'm doing here, which you hear in the background behind us, is it's solo guitar. It's solo electric guitar. There's no looping. I was the first person to do the digital looping, and I just, it's just so embarrassing what these singer-songwriters do where they just play the song and have it playing a loop. So I got quickly frustrated with repeating loops where you hear the same thing over and over again. So I, a long time ago, 80s, developed techniques of using long delays in, in strange ways to make myself sound more orchestral without you ever hearing repeats. And that's what you hear going on in this Well, that's what song. I noticed. I noticed on, um, trying to think of, maybe... On the Deep Unreal. It's that right. So this is the same technique as that. Right, because, I mean, it sounded like numerous people were playing. It sounded like you were using different guitars. Nope, it's just one guitar. It, you know, but it has, it does sound like that. It's, you know, it's like, you know, George Van Epps sounds like more than one person playing guitar. Yeah, but this was different. Blind, Blind I mean, Blake sounds, yeah, but I just tried to find my, because I'm lazy, their way is too much work. <laughs> so I found this simple way, which grew out of um, something Terry Riley developed in the 1960s. At the, the great keyboardist, composer Terry Riley, developed in the San Francisco Tape Music Center in the 60s called the Time Lag Accumulator, which was using two different tape machines to do feedback between them. And it's kind of a t technique that was kind of co-opted by Robert Fripp, the guitarist, and he called it Frippertronics, but it, it's really all stuff from Terry Riley. And I've just taken it in a different direction here. And I, digital instead of analog. Yeah, it's yeah. digital. But I like to, you know, there's no way you can figure out how I'm doing this, what right. you hear behind us. There's no way you can figure that out. I can show you in five minutes. It's easy. I can play that way and I can talk at the same time. But if somebody else picks up the same guitar, tries to play through the same thing, I've noticed they almost, they're just confounded by it. So it's just something that I figured out that I do. Right. Right, but I mean, there's also a tonal quality. It's not just... No, I'm, I'm, there's tonal qualities. I mean, that, that's why I'm, I said it sounded like multiple guitars to me, was I was talking mostly about the, uh, the, the sound that there was sounding like different guitars were playing. Yes, yeah, not like, just Not just like contrapuntal or, you know, obviously textures that aren't physically possible with one hand on a fingerboard, but not just that. What really I noticed was like tonal quality of different instruments. So that's, that is the influence of kind of Chinese Gu Qin music. The Gu Qin, an ancient instrument from China that goes back 4,000 years, um, they notated the way you picked each note uh, and the different way of making a different sound for each note, but they did not notate the rhythm or right. the melody. So it was a way it was a way of making playing an acoustic instrument to have a lot of different timbres and sounds. You hear that echoed in the acoustic guitar and electric right. guitar of Derek Bailey too. Um, so I'm kind of using those techniques and those ideas and then also there's metric ideas that have to do with um, Conlon Nancaro, Mexican American composer since the 1940s, long dead, who made very rhythmically complicated music for player pianos. Uh, there's that, and what else is going on there? There. So I, before I learned Western music theory, when I first started to play guitar, I learned Hindustani raga theory in in great academic detail, and he took a course on it in college and stuff too. So I tend to think of 
probably different from the way you would think of creating harmonic things uh, and scales. I tend to think in raga scales superimposed two different raga scales that they would never do superimposed okay. over each other to create the pitches. Uh, okay. You know what the sets of pitches yeah. I work with. So there's there's all this stuff going on. It's not intellectual. It's just what I grew up with. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, it would be intellectual to some if they didn't understand. It. Yeah, but so yeah. you know, so what you're playing exactly. playing being all some if you didn't, yeah, yeah. if so you didn't right. have the schooling you had, you know, so you know, Junior Bernard and Bob Wills exactly. would be intellectual to some when they're playing over changes, Very you know, so. but it's not. It's, no, not to them, because he, yeah, they he's know just, it. And he's just playing from his heart. Right. right. So that's just what, that's what yeah. I'm doing. Oh, totally. Yeah. But, but speaking of playing from the heart, we could fade this down. Let's go to something else and maybe hear a track in its entirety. So my great hero, Derek Bailey on guitar, who used wider intervals, clusters, mixed harmonics and stop notes, he could play more complicated things than Jaco Pistorius could ever play of mixing harmonics and stop notes of any kind of, any notes he wanted, kind of influenced by Weber and Anton Weber. Anyway, so music with a lot of heart, and he played, when Derek played, there was heart there, but it was a kind of a cold heart that you didn't really know, and I, growing up with, with blues and stuff, I always want to have a lot of heart heart and warmth, or Bob Wills, another mm -hmm. example where there's a lot of heart and yeah. warmth. So here's a funny acoustic guitar uh, version of Spoonfall, okay. the Willie Dixon tune, uh, and I'm playing it using sort of my, the twisted way I see Derek Bailey's style of guitar playing. He made a record called Ballads, mm -hmm. where he played a lot of jazz ballads uh, that he learned, that he played kind of like Jim Hall when he was young in the early 60s. And, but he played them in the style that he played from the 70s on, and this is kind of my, it's kind of my, my, my take on, you know, a standard I grew up with is Spoonful. So let's, so here's Spoonful, um, just me playing it on the guitar. Acoustic. Now we're back. That was 
quite exciting. Spoonful, yeah. And um, so tell me what's happening with you. What are you looking forward to? What floats your boat musically right now? Oh. You know, it seems like it's the end time for making records of adventurous music because there's not a replacement younger audience coming in mm -hmm. because nobody has high fidelity equipment to listen to stuff on. They're listening on earbuds on their phone to low res MP3s. Mm -hmm. So it kind of feels like the end times to me. So I've been trying to make more CDs for different labels and things than I normally would. So it's been about 10 or 11 CDs a year for the past couple of years. Whoa. And I'm in the middle of that this year still. I get a lot of records with a lot of different bands, a lot of different people. Um, I was just trying to mix seven records at the same time do the post-production and that's too many but so everything you know I, I, don't, I don't do stuff unless it's got a home uh -huh. and I have been able to find homes for things so so there are record labels that yes. you're working with yes yes I mean yes I think there's like four record labels stuff was on last year maybe five different labels uh -huh. for 10 or 11 things I'll generally do three three or four myself and then the rest is on other labels. If you just type my name at Amazon, you can see all that stuff sitting there. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I've just been making a lot of records. Uh, Do you feel like actually the studio is a more fertile place for you to play than like in the live performance world? It seems easier to get a group of great people together to make a record than it gets to do a live gig. Like mm -hmm. we, the, the you know, you know, we heard by the five times surprise right. bit. Everybody's too high rent. You can't, and we live in different cities. So we get together and make an album, and then we rarely, you know, get, uh, get to play. Um, do you generally record here in the Bay Area? Uh, generally, I'll record in Oakland in a studio called Megasonic Sound. There, mm -hmm. I like, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll mix things at home. Don't mm -hmm. I don't record home at home except for direct guitar, so guitar overdubs and things. But I never use a microphone. Oh, you don't use at a home, mic at home, with at, your home, at, home. at home. No, because it's too expensive to have good mics and to do everything right and oh, to get sound isolated and stuff. So no, it's usually we'll do stuff. Yeah. In studios, I was in studio day before yesterday up in Oakland mixing an album with a Korean music with a a, a band was a quintet, a quintet with four women musicians and me. It was a, a, a kind of the leaders of Korean musicians. Mm -hmm. who, and I guess, so if you have a good mix down studio, that that alleviates a lot. Of yes, that saves a lot of money, and we record things. I've always recorded things very quick and efficiently live. Mm -hmm. I think in the beginning of free improvisation in America in the 70s, I was the first person to, to realize you could go to a good studio and do things quickly. Um, and I was taught how to work in the studios by, you know, people at Fantasy and CBS and Automat Good Studios in San Francisco, where they expected you to act like a professional session musician and do things quickly. Yeah. So I've always made records very quickly in the studio. A couple of years ago, I was in Norway uh, producing and playing for a, the Norwegian Rune Gramophone label, a tribute to the great uh, Norwegian guitarist Terry Ripdahl. Uh -huh. And musicians are supported by the government there, and they have, you know, good incomes. They don't have yeah. to depend on music. And we get in the studio, and these guys want to listen to every take after they've played it. And I'm like, are you guys crazy? You know? 
the wrecking crew didn't listen to takes. That's the producer's job and the engineer's right. job. It's nothing. The musicians don't listen to takes. Right. And I found that Norwegian jazz musicians stop, have some coffee, have some vodka, listen to every take, and then go back. And they take forever. In the I don't even know if that's a good idea. It's I a mean, horrible idea. It's I a mean, horrible. Besides idea. the money, besides the money and the efficiency factor. Just Go, I mean, going in and out of the zone. And, good and, luck. Yeah, yeah, and and living with the ghost of the last take every time you play. No, and they're and they are all like little. Oh, I played one wrong note there. We must do another take. I, I can just cut it out. Oh no, we must do another take. And I was just kind of shocked that, I guess because, um, money and time spent in the studio wasn't as much a factor as it is for us here. Right. I was like, whoa, whoa. But you know, my model was what I learned in the Bay Area from engineers and master engineers telling me how musicians are supposed to do stuff. Yeah. And then I had, since the 80s, a lot of association with both David Lindley and Richard Thompson, and they are, you know, very efficient, very disciplined, though different, about how to do things in the studio, <sighs> and unbelievably professional. Yeah. So I was lucky I learned that from those kinds of guys. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, we do stuff. We do stuff fast. Yeah, yeah, and and have like you say, having your own mix down. You know, you can work on it later and not have to worry about. It. I don't have any of that. Those skills, I, I don't do that. So I came from a film production background before I Bruce. Before I came from a music background, I was had I was working professionally in film production from the first year I was in college in the summer off and stuff like that. So, um, doing TV show, commercial TV show work. And I, I learned to, uh, wait, let me just finish yeah. it. He'll edit that, right? And I'm I, doing professional um, TV and film production work, so I, I, I also took those skills that you're not wasting money, right. you do stuff fast and efficiently, you know all the stuff about sound and equipment yeah. and microphones. So I came from that kind of background, which is unusual. That's yeah. helpful, you know, yeah. I mean, I've always been fast in the studio, but it's, you know, for the same reason. It's just money. And I, and I don't like listening to takes because it's it's ghosts to me. I mean, and you can do I don't it. like to make multiple takes anyways, but... The more I hear what I did before, now when I go to play, I'm not just hearing the song, I'm hearing what's been played, and I'm trying, you know, almost to decipher what I liked, what I didn't like, and it's just ghosts that I don't need in my head while I'm trying to create. That's that's my, sort of my M.O. You yeah, know? you know, same same with me, and you know, if you think there's something horribly wrong, just play it again, don't listen to it. Right. Yeah. right. And that's the producer's job or the engineer's job to say, no, you did a good job. Right. And I always trust who's ever on the other side of the glass. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, it's nice to have a producer. So uh, we're going to play some music here, and we'll be right back.
We're back again, folks. Sorry for the interruptions. Dogs have to be fed. Tables have to be hacksawed. Chairs have to be chaired. Anyways, we're back ready to rant. It looks like Henry's got a rant going right now. Um, damn, what really pisses you off? Stage monitors? Stage monitors! Right, is it the sound men or is it just the monitors themselves? Do the Texas Playboys have monitors? No. 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 But, I mean, the singers sure wish they had. Yeah, they didn't, I don't, Tommy Duncan didn't sound that bad without no, monitors, no, I don't no, think. No, no, he didn't. Um, I don't know, monitors... Monitors... And people played a lot softer back then, too. People played a lot softer. I, and I... Nothing wrong with playing softer. No, well, hey, you're talking to me. Yeah. But then again, I'm you know I'm not Mr. Amp guy either. But you know, with the amps and the pedals, you can play as quiet as you want and get any kind of sound nowadays. You know what? You know what else irritates me? What? Is modeling amps. You know why? Why? You can't do controlled feedback because there's too much latency, too mm. much delay, and that makes uh, feedback not happen. So. You know, you can't grab a note like Carlos Santana. You can't grab all the different harmonics like Jimi Hendrix. Right. I'll note that uh, Dweezil Zappa, Frank's son, uses modeling amps and when playing his father's music to try to get the sounds of the old sounds on the records. But he can't do feedback, which his dad did, so he has to use his sustainer pickup in the guitar to make notes do sort of feedback. Uh -huh. But I've always loved the thing of the guitar that's alive in your hands in a system with the amp and it's like a living breathing thing and you can even at low volume if you play right next to the amp that's what i do i have the amp right next to me you know within two feet of the guitar uh -huh. if i'm sitting down it's directly behind me if i'm standing up it's up, up high the speaker cabinet right next to me and all these modeling amps people can't do feedback you can't physically doesn't work with over three millisecond delay uh -huh. That's, oh. So that's nobody ever talks about that. Oh. I don't know why. So would a jazz guitar not feedback in that if you let's say you had like a old twin and, and you played it too loud? This the amp, the guitar would still feedback, right? Uh, it wouldn't, but it wouldn't feedback with a modeling amp because there's too much delay. It would feedback on a few notes, but it would only be certain notes, and you couldn't grab all the different harmonics and have the feedback. Right, it would just be a, a howl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Never thought about it. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, you know nobody talks about it. Uh -huh. I, I guess nobody cares. I guess of they the don't, people they, who are using them, they don't want to do that, right? And I and mean, it's also control. The whole idea of all this is to control things. You and know? I, you know, I grew up with psychedelic music and feedback being really important. Whether it's The Grateful Dead or Jimi Hendrix yeah. or you know Barry Milton and Country Joe and the Fish, who was right. the first psychedelic guitarist. So. I kind of want to have that at low volume in any kind of music I do. It's important to me, and uh, yeah, it doesn't happen with those kind of things. Interesting. Never thought of that. God, that's not something I would rant about, though. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's not rant. It it's not. Yeah. So okay, let's quiz. Who's the first artist to do controlled feedback that we know of? It's a jazz guitarist. It's God, before the San Francisco scene. Yeah, oh yeah. Who is it, do you think? God, I don't know. Les Who's Paul the, or something. No, the person who regularly used feedback, oddly, was Gabor Zabo. Right. 
I mean, he'd take a note, and, and that's where Santana got it from, from holding the note a long time, uh, from seeing... A lot of those San Francisco guitarists got stuff from seeing Guy Rosavo in clubs in North Beach. Right. Yeah. He's one of my favorite jazz yeah, guitarists. Yeah, I used to hear him a lot when I was younger. Yeah. 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 So who are your favorite jazz guitarists who are the ones that people don't talk about much nowadays? Like, nobody talks much about... Gabrazabo nowadays. Who, right. Who's, well, Jimmy Rainey is a yep. guy no one ever talks about. You know, he was brilliant. I just loved his playing. Um, you know, that's what comes to mind right now. Just totally an unsung hero. You know? Yeah. Or Hank of, Garland, same kind of Well, case. Hank, yeah, Hank, I would consider nobody him talks. Very, nobody talks about him now. Really? Uh, in Where my I, circles, we do. Your circles, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, Hank was brilliant, you yeah. know, and he, you know, he, it's funny because Hank was not really on the scene so much as a right. jazz player. Right. So, but, uh, of course everybody knew the records, you know, and knew about him and he was amazing. I mean, everybody, he was on everybody's radar, you know, but yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, now it's the word that the ocean's full of them, you know, it's just, they seem to have more personality back in the previous generations than the younger ones. That seems to me... Why? To, well, Why? What's your theory? Oh, I have numerous theories. One, one I think, is just uh, just the, the YouTube, the ability to copy people, has become so so easy. It was, it was really hard to copy somebody back when I was the, the kid's age of the ones that I teach in school. You know what I mean? It was just like, to really get down to the nuance of them. You just had to listen a lot and sort of internalize it and do it. You couldn't really, you know, second by second dissect it that way. You yeah. just didn't have the electronic control. Um, I also think uh, when I came up, the, the whole point was to be different in yourself. That was like... That's what I. That's what I. That grew was up impressed with. upon me, and you know all uh, and my. That's not not you know. There's a whole different mentality now amongst those kids and their peers, and and also it's not as much of a multi generational experience as it used to be. Like when I came up, I maybe there was one guy who was my age on the scene doing what I was doing. Everybody else was the older guys. Yeah. And some were like the generation before me, and some were two generations before me. And we were all intermingling in that way, and it, now it, and it, now it's more of a of a homogenous scene. The kids hang with you know they're in school and they hang in their pod, and they all have their guy who's their guy, and you know what I mean. And I, I think knowing the most shit, being able to do the most shit, that seems to be the that the high end watermark rather than just being yourself. You know, all my heroes were heroes who sounded like themselves, who, you know, their mom could recognize them if they played one note. Their right. mom could. Yeah. Maybe their grandma could. And and they weren't the heroes I wanted to copy. I wanted to learn and understand. But they sounded like themselves, and they made me want to, how am I going to sound like myself? Right. And I don't know. You So you're thinking that happens less nowadays? You, from what my observation is, yes, there are always guys that come along and do that. And then I, maybe it's just there's so many more. It's like now you've just got the reverberating pool, you know, the big fish, and then everybody copies that fish for a while, and then another one comes along, and the school just goes over in that direction. You know, there weren't as many guys playing when I was coming up either. So that's a, you know, that's a whole thing too. I mean, 
But no, I mean, I've, I've observed it in my school, the kids coming up, you know, it's like it doesn't seem to be the top priority. You know what else is missing that was there when we were kids was when we were kids, you'd go in the record store, you'd buy the Jimmy record, Jim Rainey record, and some jazz guy would say, hey, if you like that, maybe you'd like this too. Right. And the difference is they were telling you musically what you might like and, you know, trying to expand your world. And now if on YouTube or anywhere, Amazon, you say, okay, I really like this. What would I, what else would I like? It's not going to send you to what you'd like. It's going to send you to the things that are promoted. that are paid advertisements that sell the most. So, you know, if you say, if you say, um, okay, I like Jimmy Bryant. What else would I like? It'll say, oh, you'd like Taylor Swift. Here's the new Taylor Swift record. Right. You know, is is what the automatic, the first level of what it refers you to, what the ads are for on the side, uh. are always going to be promoted things. So kids that are just home alone because they're not going to a record store to get advice, um, they're they, they're exposed to and, to and, less a less wide range of things. And and they're just not hang. I mean, they're not hanging on the scene. They're just. I mean, yeah. There was music being played. You know, I mean, it's it's live yeah. people playing. It's you know, your records are great and everything, but until you hear this music live, at least the music I play, uh, it's you, you've missed so much of what's happening. And then to be able to be young and observe the people playing it, and to be in the room with it while it's being played, and then to maybe even take part in it, these are huge experiential uh, building blocks for personality and style that are missing. Yeah, I, when I was in college, I saw so many things in Boston, the Jazz Workshop, right. Paul's Mall, other venues. I saw so many big heroes, you know, Annette Coleman, Larry Coriel, Cecil Taylor. I saw them and sat 10 feet away from them while they were playing in a tiny room. And the vibe and other things would come across and not, not the melody, harmony, and rhythm, but the vibe, the way they right. told a story the, the with whole, their instruments, right. the way that they worked with the other musicians. You saw all this stuff that, that there's not words for and learned those things. Yes, right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that I think is a huge, huge thing, you know, and uh, for me, that, that's, that's one of the, and it's a genesis of style, you know, and, and self-expression and personal experience, yeah. you know, uh, you know, it's like, these people, everybody I knew, I mean, I know I love the music, but I also love the people that played it. I wanted to be a part of that community. You know, everybody was so eccentric and so brilliant and so different and so unique. And, you know, and, and it was so alive in a way that uh, most other things that I'd experienced were. You know, I had, you had that experience with the jazz scene in the Bay Area. I had the same experience, but it was with a different scene. It was with the free improvisation and experimental music scene in the UK, in Europe, in Scandinavia, and Japan. And I'd go to those places to play and meet those people. I remember when I, like before I first, I didn't have one record out. I was just playing, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go to England, go to London, and go see the guys. I have these records by who are heroes of mine. And I went there, and the big shock was like, oh, you play? Okay, you're playing on the gig with us tonight. They would just tell me to come play on the gig. Yeah. And I was some guy from out of town they didn't know. Yeah. Uh, and and that was a 
transformational, huge experience. For sure. Me. Well, that's that's again, you learn by playing. You know. Yeah. You know, you, you. That's what it is. I mean, ultimately, you learn by playing. I think, and practicing and and the studying is just all there to support that experience. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes, if you get super practice bound and it's not. It's not balanced with performance or at least playing with other people or playing in a situation that you plan to play in. You, uh, you get out of balance. And so when you go to play, you're actually doing what you've taught your hands and mind to do, which is whatever that thing is in the jet you've been doing. Yeah. And uh, I, I, always wanted, I always wanted the gift of being able to hear myself the way others, particularly particularly non-musicians, hear me. Like, it would, be, it would be so lovely to get a chance to hear myself. For like, you know, like one minute to see with somebody's eyes. This is yeah. the equivalent ah. of that. To, to actually sit and listen to my playing from the complete perspective of a non-musician. It would be so, I, I believe, so enlightening because... You know, our, we have our way, we, our ears are educated, our mind is educated, and so our choices are based on aesthetic that is really steeped in experience. Whereas ultimately, the sound of it, you know, to a person who doesn't bring any of that to the table, that to me would be a perspective I would love to have. Just, you know, give me five minutes of that in my life. It would be great. <laughs> you know, the, the only time that's happened to me is when I've heard myself on the radio of something that was recorded a few years before, and I don't know it's me right. for, a, for a few seconds. Right. And that, that's always surprising. But, but even then, you're, you're so educated in terms yeah. of what you're hearing. You're, you're not really hearing it in that, like, no. free way that, that, that normal people... I mean, and I, I hate to call them normal people, but, you know, and, and this assumes that we're abnormal, which we are, but... Uh, Anyways, that that's always been a thing that I I wish we all could do because I think a lot of us might make different choices. You know, uh, it's interesting you say all that because I don't think that much about who I play for, but I definitely don't play for guitarists. I definitely don't play for musicians. I play for the regular people who come to the show in the audience, and I think that's who I make records for. If I'm if I'm thinking at all. You know, I want to play something that they'll enjoy, that'll make them happy, that maybe it'll challenge them or maybe expand the way they see things. Maybe that's what's underneath it, but that's who I'm playing for. I'm not, I'm, I'm never thinking I'm playing. Oh, and I, I'm, I'm not, never I'm, I'm I'm not suggesting that, that motivational thing. I'm, you know, I was just I'm just, I'm just guessing who yeah, I play for. Right. But if I'm, you know, if I'm on stage and thinking, okay, I got to make, there, there's the audience out there, what would they like? that I pick what the regular person would like. I don't right. ever pick what the musician right, right. would like. You know, I mean, you pick you know, ultimately what you, what you like, what you have to say, too. I mean, but just, just to experience our thing from a clean slate, I think, would be so yeah. illuminating. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a definitely, you know, jazz musicians rarely stray towards entertainer. And I am very much... 
over towards that. You let, know? Me, let me ask you something about that, because I wanted to before sure. I forget. We're both people who sometimes, when we play guitar in front of an audience, we talk at the same time we're playing. You yeah. do that in the Red Guitar Show. Right. Do you play differently when you, if you're playing and improvising while you're talking about something? Do you improvise differently if you're talk if part of your brain is somewhere else? You know, as much as yes, I mean, I would play differently if I was accompanying a singer versus if I wasn't. That's not so much what I mean. I know that's what not what you mean, but that's that's got to be part of the answer, because it's you know when I'm talking, I'm serving right the, the, the totality within my playing. There are places in my show where where it's where I'm just playing full on. And I'm talking. And I would play the same way if I wasn't. See, I play completely differently if I'm talking. Uh, I made a record, I guess about eight years ago, called Everything Forever. Uh, and I was in the studio, and I was set up, to, and it was recorded direct into the board for the guitar. And it was a so long guitar solo, hour-long uh, guitar solo. And the whole time I, pl I said, I don't want to think about what I'm playing. So the whole time I was playing... I talk to the engineer about other stuff. Uh -huh. Not being recorded, because it's direct. Right. So the whole time, I talked about other stuff and didn't pay attention consciously to what I was playing. And what I was playing, I played so many things I'd never played before. I played so many ideas, like, how did I do that? Um, because I wasn't thinking, and I wasn't getting in the way of wherever the music if the music comes from somewhere else. Right. I right. wasn't getting in the way. And I thought it, I thought that was really interesting. And, and sometimes I do talking pieces live where I'll play guitar while I talk to the audience. Yeah, well, or, I mean, know. my whole piece is that. Yeah. You know, but really, I mean, there's one point in this show where I, I'm talking about John Coltrane and I'm playing over Giant Steps. Right. And, uh, and it, it's not any different than when I'm just playing Giant Steps. I mean, it, I don't think it is. It sounds to me pretty much the same. You know, I'm just playing. Yeah, know? I would play completely different if I was, and, and probably more interesting if I was talking at the same time. <laughs> and if you could, if you can remove the talking. Right. Well, yeah. I did an interesting track the other way. So I mentioned Derek Bailey's a hero yeah. of mine, as is the piano player Cecil Taylor. Right. And I thought I'd do, uh, uh, for this album of Requiem that I just did, Requiems, I did one for Cecil and Derek together. So this is the secretly... You know how the cook kills the goose in the kitchen. I'm telling you, rather than right. that usually you, I wouldn't say. So I took my favorite piano solo, which is about a 12-minute one by Cecil Taylor on a European label record called Garden, and I played it on headphones as a guide track while I played seven-string guitar with it. So I listened to him and I kind of fit in with what Cecil was doing, followed his narrative, followed his tempo changes. Uh -huh. So the music would take on many of the, what I was playing, though I right. wasn't duplicating, it would take on many of the things. So I played the whole thing through like that. Then I went back and did another pass with a different guitar and didn't listen to the first pass I did, again listening to Cecil, and then deleted Cecil and just listen to the two guitars. And it sounds like these two guitars have this impossible understanding of each other and aren't getting in each other's way and are shifting to tempos and things together in like some weird ESP way. Uh -huh. But it was just made by using the Cecil oh, yeah, for, that, a, that guy, makes total for a guide track. It was an interesting. I like experiments. I like right. every time I play with, I like it to be an experiment because I'm playing with somebody new to see what happens or I'm, you know, I'm lo always looking 
to find out something new from what right. happens. Right. That's my motivation. Well, you know, I think I'm, at least as a jazz player, I'm hoping that everybody does that. Yeah. I, um, I, I, perhaps there is a lot in, in, in the more straight ahead world, there is a huge, um, I've even heard it said by numerous young players, uh, play my shit is what they call it. Uh, you know, like their work, you know, their, their hip stuff that they have. Um, I heard one particular guy, I won't mention his name, say, you know, like he had a bad night, he'd felt I couldn't play my shit. And I, and, I, and I said, I remember saying to him at the end of the night, I says, man, that sounds like a great night to me. Yeah. It's like, you just got given a gift. You had to do, your stuff wasn't there, so you had to come up with other stuff. That's jazz. So you just experienced jazz, and you're sitting there hating yourself because you didn't recite a bunch of stuff, but that's not improvising, that's just... That's the recital at school, to please the teacher. Well, yeah, but yeah, and so... He kind of looked at me like I was crazy and blew me off. But, you know, it's the way he is. But, yeah, you know, if you... I think every... I mean, ultimately, we all want to do that. I mean, right? I mean, practicing is about developing options, and playing is about making choices. And they're two different things, you know. And you, we sit and work on our instrument and study harmony and listen to other people to get ideas for ways to do it, and then we expect ourselves to come up in the moment with the magic potion that's going to be the right thing to do at that moment. And uh, I don't think any of us are really any different fundamentally on that level, how we get there. Yeah, you find different ways of getting there. You right. know, some people right. it's drugs or alcohol. Right, right. right. yeah. yeah. It, doesn't, you know, it doesn't work for very long. Right, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. And it, 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 it's priorities. What's the important thing? You know, making something happen, playing what you know, impressing the other guitar players. You know, I mean, you have your priorities, and that that pretty much defines how you approach the skin and the cat, you know. Yeah, so uh, you're making 10 records a year. Wow. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Wow. That's really quite a pace. Good for you. But right? they take—they don't take much time. Yeah, they don't take much yeah. time. I know. I but and I'm kind of a work all day, every day kind of guy. You know, I mean, a lot of times I'm working on science stuff for Antarctica or yeah. in videos for Antarctica. Or do you like taking guitar down to Antarctica? You must. I do. Yes. yes. Okay. So it's and like, I'll record. Like I below. I mean, you go in the summer, right? <laughs> it's the spring. The spring. The spring is when the diving is. But yeah, but if I'm in McMurdo it's, Station, it's cold, right? The last couple of years, I've been in McMurdo Station, staying in the dorm, and there's two bars, and we play. We have gigs, and we oh, play, so it's and we climate, play. New, you've got to climatize. Yeah, area. we. But oh. I used to, in the field camp. I still used to bring a guitar. One time, I brought a Tom Anderson guitar that had. Do they do they have like a particularly bad uh, well, response to the cold? Let me tell you. Yeah. So okay. I had this Tom Anderson, which was a Koa body with a, um, a solid rosewood neck. And it looked, after three months in Antarctica, on the, in, the, in the wall of our big tent, it looked like someone had taken the neck and twisted it. The whole neck was twisted. It would destroy the guitar, because um, there's zero humidity, zero. So all moisture is removed. And evidently, when you removed all the moisture from the neck of this guitar, it was like you know baking it in a hundred and... 20 degree oven for two weeks uh -huh. and it just it destroyed the guitar so I th wow. so then I'll generally bring something that's got 
Then I went to bringing guitars with graphite necks. Graphite, right, of course, yeah. or carbon fiber. Yeah, carbon yeah. fiber necks. Um, and if I'm in McMurdo Station at the big base, then I just can bring a regular guitar and I keep it in the lab, which is actually humidified. Mm -hmm. And I'll record stuff every year and it ends up on records. Uh -huh. You know, I'll record it in the lab while I'm there, while people are working around me in the corner of the lab with headphones yeah. on, taking a little break while uh -huh. something else is happening. I see. That's cool. Yeah. You know? And get in that water, man. It's Sorry. so beautiful. It's it's, I'm it's, sure it's it's thousand foot visibility. It's incredible. The light is, is it cold. Yeah, the water's um, twenty eight degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's yeah cold minus shit. minus two Celsius. Yeah, it's super cold. Yeah. But we wear dry. I just I wear the same dry suit I wear here in Monterey. I just wear more underwear, and you know we can stay about an hour. Dry suit. No, I don't. It's not a wet suit. It stays dry, and you wear underwear underneath. So you do never, you know, don't come in contact with the water. Just my face, yeah, just my face. Okay, it's the only thing that comes in contact with the water. Oh, okay, and you get cold, you know. My, if I go to bed, if our if a body temperature is ninety eight point six, if I do two dives, my temperature will be ninety four and a half, ninety five when I go to bed at night, and then gradually, and I'm cold, but I'm bundled up in my minus forty sleeping bag, and uh, I eat a lot of food, and eventually you you get warm again. <laughs> wow. You're going to live forever, you know that. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, but I, I don't know. So I have, a few, you know, I have two or three more deployments probably down there in uh -huh. me. Right now I have the ninth most dives of any diver in the U.S. Antarctic program. And the, the other people are far ahead of me. But that's a lot of dives to have Damn. under ice there. Yeah. 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 Wow. One time we went to a polar diving conference... Some of my Antarctic buddies and I, polar diving conference up in Svalbard in the Arctic, high Arctic above Norway. And there were the Norwegian and Swedish military dive teams there. And they all, of course, dive on tether, as everybody else in the world does under ice. Uh -huh. And we don't dive on tether. They, could, they were horrified. They couldn't look at us underwater. They couldn't look at us getting in the water. They were just absolutely terrified to see that we were diving off tether under ice. Because they, they have got, you know, you're on a rope and the guy pans... Let's right. well, I, would, you know, kind of, I would like that comfort myself. We've going. never had an accident of, of, of somebody diving off tether. They've had plenty of accidents and deaths with people diving on tether. But So where we dive, where there's no currents, where we're 20 miles from the open ocean, mm. not much current, um, and there's thick ice overhead, and we can see, and there's three a thousand foot visibility, we can see. So you can always see the hole. You know, or you go around a corner and you just go back around the corner. You follow mm. the physical features of the environment. Uh -huh. And there's so many cool sounds underwater. There's um, the Waddell seals make sounds that sound like 1950s electronic music, and they have like 40, 50 different sounds they can make. So there's how like, long can they stay underwater? Eh, they can stay underwater an hour, but they can go really deep. They can go down below a thousand feet to feed. Do you ever done any free diving? Yes, I am a free diver. I'm a a, a trained free diver. I can free dive. You know, in, in warm water in just a wetsuit, I can easily free dive to 100 feet, 120 feet, and I can stay I can stay down for a couple of minutes. You can stay down for a couple of minutes? Yep, I can do a five-minute static breath hold in a pool resting on my That's stomach. what I think you should do is hold your breath for three minutes and play. That would be I've done cool. that. I've done that. That would be a cool thing to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this record I was just mixing yesterday, we did a piece with, uh, of mine called Breath Control where you're only allowed to play while you're exhaling. 
you can't put then you have to stop and inhale so that's one of the you know there's a bunch of other little features to it but yeah to try to get people to, to, to leave more space that's a great and you have idea. to breathe slow you have to breathe slow and you're not allowed to play when you're inhaling that's kind of a cool idea yeah, it's, it's, it's I'd fun. like to do that yeah that would be a fun thing to do I have this friend who can sing inhaling and exhaling it's the funniest thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious and the look he gets on his face like he's about to choke you know it's 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 a comedy routine and he's quite good at it but you know soloists who leave who can and choose to leave a lot of space in their playing over over a jazz rhythm section whether it's miles davis or yeah. Rodato leo smith uh, it's often trumpet players more than saxophone players who leave space i wonder what do you think that's true kind of well you know, yeah, in general, saxophone players are notier than yeah. trumpet players. Yeah. Saxophone players have generally have more, more working range, too. That's, yeah. a, that's another factor. I do, and it's a lot less breath-intensive and chops the, the physicality of a trumpet versus... I would imagine all that... You know, and there are a lot of guys who play a lot of shit on the trumpet, as we know. But, I mean, you, you've got your Chet Bakers and your yeah. Miles kind of guys, yeah. too. Um, yeah, but it's sure is nice to leave space in any kind of music. Always know, is. death metal. It's nice to leave space. Anything. It's nice to leave space. Yeah, I think as you get older, you appreciate it more. Yeah, they somebody they they clued me into that when I was young. So I've always yeah always think it's the, the, I would rather leave more I, space. I play a lot, but I mean I still leave space, but I play a lot. <laughs> you know. And now that I'm playing solo so much more, you know, there's just more space to fill, so it's I can do it. And um, but I enjoy not. Do you play less gigs per year than you played five years ago? I sure do. It varies. Uh, it's right now. I'm I'm kind of in a period where I haven't been playing a lot, but school is real intense right now because I'm in the school year and I've got a lot of students, so. I might not be like out hunting gigs as much as I. I mean, I got road work that I'm doing. I'm going to New Zealand in a week or two. Oh, I love New Zealand. And I'm going to New York right after that. So I mean, I've I've got and this weekend I've got. I mean, so I do have gigs, but um, it seems to be a little slower. I think, but I go like in in like little dips and valleys. I work a lot. So you know, I used to average fifty or sixty gigs a year. Now uh, it's like thirty or forty. Yeah, I'm I'm usually about. 20 a month, you know, 25 a month. I wish. But, you know, I mean, they vary. I mean, I'll, I'll just, uh, I, I love to play so much, Henry. I do that, too, I that, do that too. I, that I like, you know, I mean, if singers call me, I love to go accompany them. And if, you know, I'll back up a horn player in that thing, then I'll have my gig, then then there's another, you know, if someone needs a song. I mean, I, I just want to play, you know, so... So I get a lot of, like, when I'm just around L L.A. in particular, there's a lot of places people call me up to play. And then I've got my main shows. And now that I've kind of done doing the red guitar more, it's, it's a different kind of an act, so it needs a different kind of place to do it because it's more of a theater. Mm -hmm. You need people to show up at the beginning and hear the whole thing, you know, and you don't really want a whole lot of uh, ambient, cocktail serving and talking you know so um do you have different modules where it's different sometimes i do the thing show different pretty much every yeah day. that's what i was thinking but i mean it, a lot of it's more like in a, i have all these i mean it's 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 slightly episodic 
the way. The Do you way have it, some episodes you don't use, some nights, and some episodes you can use? And, 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 and like. There's a lot of comedy in it, so if people are really responding to the comedy, I'll probably do a little bit more with that. If people are really responding to the playing, I'll play more than maybe I would normally in an average set. Whereas if they're not really responding to the playing, I'll keep the narrative going a little bit more sharp. Yep. I just, yeah, it's all about the same things, playing a gig, reading the room. So yeah. I do a lot of these shows where I'll show video from Antarctica that I've shot uh -huh. over the ice and I play live guitar that and, like and, and talk the yeah. whole time yeah. I do it. Yeah. So, and I'll, sometimes I'll put in jokes or stories. Yeah. I have the fixed video, so I'm stuck with the fixed video. Or sometimes I'll be like a VJ and have like 10 different videos on my laptop and I could decide, you know, right. which three to play right. and things like that. But so I do the same thing where right. I do these shows where I talk the whole time while I play and I just, I love doing it. You know, I, I you know, my, my goal for this show is to get it on Broadway. But um, it's funny because I think if that were to ever happen, besides the fact of having to do it every night for a long run, I would probably have to keep it very close every time for the tech reasons and, and you know the, the sundry reasons that although I don't know maybe a lot of one-man shows like I want that Billy Crystal show he got to just riff whatever he felt like it you know I mean it's just me so yeah. no, it's yeah. not like any real lighting needs to follow me or stage yeah it's the same, same with so me, maybe yeah. it wouldn't be because if I had to do it the exact same way every time I think I might not, I might take that back as my, that being my goal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can I have it back? You know, um, I think I'd rather, yeah. But to me, right now, that show me, means a lot to me, and not just, of course, it's just all the things I've worked on, but in a way, it, I believe it helps explain to the world what us musicians, how, what, how we tick. What, what we're like, you know, give a deeper understanding of, you know, people see us and they know we're dedicated. They, they sense that. They know that, you know, we work, we really care about what we're doing and, you know, that's all, you know, we give up, we prioritize our lives in strange ways compared to the normal. Everybody understands that about a musician, but I'd like to take them deeper into the process so that maybe the next time they go hear music, their appreciation of it will be so much more meaningful because oh i get it this is where all this comes from you know this is why they're this way and this is what makes this one different than the other you know it makes a, a listener with more appreciation that's really kind of what i'm hoping to create with this show is just sort of help the world of music out yeah in my own little way yeah yeah yeah, I wish it was. I wish there was one when I, near where I live when well, I happen to be in town. I'm yeah, almost yeah, always yeah, out of town. Well, it will happen because I do it around here. And do you do it? At, you've done it at Kumba. I've right? done it at Kumba. I plan to do it again because I've always had great nights at Kumba. That the night I did it at Kumba, there must have been something else going on or something because it just it was a lighthouse. So yeah. it needs to be done again. I'll I'll get back there. But anyways, um, more about you. I found myself it's talking almost, again. It's almost time to wrap it up, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, but, uh, you know, you've obviously got a lot of amps and a lot of guitars. <sighs> Too many. And I imagine there's some that got away. Anything you'd like to talk about? No, nothing <laughs> special that got away, you know. Give me a Fender or Dumble-type amp, whether it's a, a Two-Rock or uh -huh. a... You know, whatever kind, um, and a JBL speaker. 
and I'm happy, but I need the JBL speaker. Really? Oh, yeah, I'm dead without a D130 or a D120. Huh. You need the JBL speaker. I can, a twin with JBLs. Boy, you're I don't in good turn, shape. But I don't turn it up above one and a well, half. But, but it's just carrying the weight I know, around. I know. Yeah, it's no fun. But I'm happy with a single D130 in a cabinet and a head. That's what I use. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the thing I use... Oh, yeah. you. I most of my electric guitars have the Swedish true temperament uh, fret thing. Uh, Frets. This, I've seen these. Oh, look at this. Um... So it plays, I'm going to take a picture of this put it on the... So it plays way more in tune. Oh, I don't want to do this right yet. I'll take a picture of it. What this smart guy in Sweden did was um, he made a guitar with the frets split into six pieces at each fret. And I, it's got... Okay, fix it. And... Um, let's see. Oh, it's missing a string. Um, frets split into six pieces so they can move back forth on little rods. Oh, you, rod. you can move them? No, that's what he did. Oh. And then he put on a particular set of strings, a particular gauge, and then he figured out, say, for a 10 set, where they had to be to be in tune, okay? Yeah. And God, it didn't so mean, weird. it did not mean straight frets for it to be in tune. So then he figured out a way to cast frets and CC computer cut of the slots on a neck to fit these crazy shaped frets. And it means the guitar is super in tune, which was, this one's got a string broken now, so, so we can't really right. see it, but we can change the string and see. So I've got these and weird... It's a, it's a headless guitar. I'm going to take a picture so people can this see This is it. my old Klein I've had since, I don't know, 1989, and I changed the neck to an aftermarket neck made by Danny Ransom that we put these true temperament Swedish frets But does in. Klein do the fret thing? Or? No, this, no. Is, this is an aftermarket neck oh, that I made. Oh, okay. I, st I still okay. have the original neck. And I really like this, how much more in tune the guitar sounds. Wow. But it's not in tune right now because the neck moves a little. And, and, yeah, and it... You don't even know. You no, don't even it's notice. like fan frets. You, I mean, if you don't look... I can't play fan frets oh, because no you can't get the harmonics. And I use harmonics oh. a lot. And, the harmo and you also you can't play slide very well with fan frets. Mm. Hmm. Um, so I'm allergic to fan frets. Well, but, but no, I you know I had to do a show once where I where I played a bunch of different guitars, and one they handed me was fan frets, and I found that as long as I didn't look, I was okay. Yeah, see, I'm always. I mean, this one is the same way. But if the fan frets, like fine. if I'm playing, you know, like a mix harmonics and stop right. notes, or you know, right with the fan frets, you're going to miss half the harmonics. Right, right. But I mean, in terms of just fretted. It doesn't feel weird at all if you don't look. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're playing a lot of harmonics or unless you're playing slide. Right. Yeah. Well, slide, I mean, you you don't look at the... I guess you do look at the frets. So, well, but you listen. With slide, yeah, ideally... Yeah. You, you, you just play a fretless guitar anyways. Yeah. Yeah, you listen to yourself. Yeah. But anyway, so that that's the thing with me is these two temperament necks. I like those a lot. Okay, well, thank you for gracing Guitar Wang and being the first guest here in, uh, I guess, Guitar Wank uh, Satellite your, Office. Your, your North, giant North. For Fortress of Solitude yes, studio. Yes, yes. And uh, Guitar Wank North. And um, we're happily playing your music. And uh, do you have a website that people can... It doesn't matter. I'm not self-promotional. So no. I mean, there's henrykaiserguitar.com. Okay, cool. Like. I mean, but just to find out where you're playing and yeah, what new stuff comes I out. I don't even put the gigs on. Okay, okay. So, yeah. like... Uh, 
you know, I figured search for me on Amazon, see if I have a new CD. Search for Amazon, you know, maybe maybe my suggestion is take a dive in the Antarctic and look for him. That's my suggestion. Come down there and look for me down there. Come to McMurdo Station, and we'll we'll go out in the field. We'll go to Granite Harbor, and we'll go through that seal. Can you get me a gig down there? (laughs) I wish there were gigs down there. Yeah, you know, boy, that would be cool. There's this virtuoso vibes player there, high level, who has a job, an office job in the bass, and he does these vibe shows that are insane. And I imagine you put shows on for the other... I mean, I just we, we just put a band together with whoever's around and we'll play what the people want to hear to dance to, you know. It's, right. it's, it's blues rock generally is what they want. But. Right. Or then there must be shows every now and then, too. Just, you know, I mean, come on. There's, no, there's not there, a whole there, lot going the, on. Well, I guess there's internet. So no, I guess but there's like four nights a week there's music in the club or five yeah. nights a week. Oh, great. Maybe, so in the bar. So. And it's all the people who are working down it's there. It's the people who work down there. That's there's really kind of There's cool. bluegrass and there's, there's, there's rock. Yeah, uh-huh. There's punk. And there ain't much jazz, uh, but there is this guy who plays vibes. And I mean, it's high-level vibes playing. I'm just always amazed. Here's this guy nobody will ever know about, you know, doing fancy versions of Chick Corea, Spain, and things like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Man. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, thank you so much, Henry. Thank you, sir. Boy, thank you what very a much. pleasure to finally meet thank you. you. Thank I mean, you, thank living you. right here in the same general area as you. All right, wankers, let that be a lesson to you. Till now, till then, signing off.
My friends, do you have an exciting product or project and want to introduce it to a community of guitar wankers? A guitar, a pedal, amp, accessory, or new recording, perhaps? Well, how about putting your money where their ears are? We are now accepting sponsors who want to do just that. Reach out to us so we can help you reach out to them. Inquiring wankers want to know. Thank you. 